That's what the Russians told the German delegation in Berlin in May 1945. You surrender unconditionally or we kill more Germans. What is your decision? Okay. You can play that well, game. They can, were only allowed to get that because complete? the captain was restrained. Uh, can I ask a silly question? Because I wanted to just introduce that Chuck has joined the panel just as well, and I will make sure that everybody is on the same page. Chuck, Thomas, Thomas, Chuck, I don't think that you have been on the panel together yet, but very happy to have both of you. Question also for both of you. Should we not actually help allow Ukraine to press the advantage when they have it? Today's interview with Annalena Baerbock, the German foreign minister, stipulates that she says, oh, and I summarize um, just very briefly, oh, everything is now about air defense. The tank question is secondary. Is that true? Is that pressing the advantage? Yeah, that's silly. To who? No. Secondary to who? Anyways, I do thank you. If you get a chance, follow Chuck and Thomas. Uh, great experts in their fields. As you know, Thomas uh, Chuck uh, is almost as good a swimmer as me. I have my, uh, <laughs> my life-saving, uh, it's a white, uh, white badge here, life-saving in Ontario. And Chuck is also a Navy SEAL. So I think that he gets a pass for the uh, uh, swimming, treading water. I can tread water for three whole minutes, Chuck. I don't know if you can. I think um, that's, that's pretty good. <laughs> Thomas, I just wanted to say I've been uh, I've been tuned in and uh, I am a great follower and I just love to hear you speaking calm, rational sense. And uh, it's been a difficult uh, past couple of weeks for me because uh, I'm dealing with, it seems to me, every self-trained artillery officer who uh, is on Twitter. So it's good to hear some common sense from a staff educated professional person with a great grasp of the subject matter and it's very great to talk to you sir thank you very much chuck but i let you speak now because i spoke for so long and it's obviously your turn and i will interject i will stay for half an hour more and then i will have to have some dinner great. but welcome well, thank you and chuck chuck uh, chuck's been getting some abuse thomas i'm sure like you especially since the kirch bridge uh He's getting a lot of hate mail. So send Chuck your love, everyone. Give him a heart. Um, those people are silly, Chuck. And I know we have a lot of armchair uh, military experts now. Um, and I'm glad we have Thomas and Chuck on the same on the same panel. I did get a, a message, a DM, not to sound petty, but it said, uh, will Thomas agree to speak with Trent about the Kirch Bridge? Uh, I don't know if anyone wants to invite Trent, but I'm not sure Thomas is in the mood, <laughs> Chuck. <laughs> well, you know what? I, I, I don't, I definitely don't take, you know, the, the pings and slings and arrows. I, I don't take them personally because I know that everybody who's been hitting me with, uh, it's a very clever invective, some of it in all caps, they won't be around. Uh, you know, when the history of the war is written and uh, we see, in fact, when attackums were deployed on the battlefield, Look, those people will not be standing up and saying, God, I was wrong, and I'm sorry I called you a monkey. They <laughs> <So, laughs> wouldn't call you that to your face. No, and I do know this. If we were together in person, you would be very much more polite to me. I promise you. <laughs> For those who don't know, Chuck is a Navy SEAL. So, yeah, he's the kind of guy who swims to shore and wrecks a battalion of enemy troops and then has lunch and then swims back. Yes, and yes, all, but, all but, why in but, what? But can you tread 
water for three minutes. It's like I can't. <laughs> that's right. Twelve Navy SEALs and a Hollywood press agent. So that's the way we do it. <laughs> All right. So Thomas, why don't you and Chuck uh, kick it off here? I think people would like to hear you. What What are your thoughts, Th Thomas? Do you have a question for Chuck on anything we've spoken about so far? I want to say that I'm sorry that Chuck gets this kind of people DMing him with insults because obviously he's telling them what happened, which is not weird. That's why my DMs are closed, because I don't want uh, internet weirdos wasting my time with theories like it was a boat. No, it wasn't. It was clear after two seconds it wasn't a boat because the wave you saw was under different pillars than the ones that had the detonation to be on. And I still have to date people in my uh, mentions that are like, yes, but it was a boat. It's like, okay. So I'm, I admire Chuck's patience because I don't have it. <laughs> I think you, I think you do have patience. And you know what? I do leave my DMs open because I, I get some pretty good information, uh, from, from people sometimes. And so, it, you know, it's a risk I'm willing to take, but, uh, you know, Again, I just I just remind people, do people light because I am very big. <laughs> and yeah. Although I am slow to anger, um, I will crush your little head. No, absolutely. He's very polite. Chuck, uh, we've got Constantine. Constantine is a Ukrainian combat veteran from 2014, now living in the states and helping out his old unit with uh, your defenders. He has a question for Thomas and hopefully for Chuck. Let's uh, let's mix it up, Constantine. Go ahead. Uh, so, uh, I wanted to ask, uh, we, we spent, uh, I joined late, uh, so I wanted to ask, uh, probably you, you have been through this topic, but I would say, uh, I, I want to ask Thomas, uh, what would be, uh, what do you think, uh, uh, like if, if you had, uh, your own, you know, authority to compile aid package from, to Ukraine from United States, uh, you know, that would consist of, uh, uh, I don't know, $1 billion or something like this, what would you say the most crucial equipment that, 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 what you put, that you would put over there? Okay, this is complex, because with a million, I would have to start... No, no billion, uh, billion, I said billion. A billion, billion. Yeah, and, and, um, and, and I mean, I don't mean like, let, let's spread it, I'm saying like, you can uh, pick only one, one piece of gear and, and send it, I'm not saying let's, uh, you know, send a bit of that, a bit of, of that, I'm just asking like, if you had one billion and uh, you had, you could only spend it on one type of gear. And more attack camps, because basically with your attack camps, you force the Russians so far back and allow the Ukrainians to strike with attack camps, Russian air bases like the one in Kursk and the one in Kuban and such things, because then you force the Russian air force back. And if you force the Russian Air Force back out of its uh, bases where the ammunition is stored, suddenly it becomes complicated for the Russians because then they have to move their airplanes further back and it's longer for them to fly to the combat zone and the ammunition is not there where they need it and so on. So for me, attack camps would be first. And if the attack camps are off limit because... Biden is scared of ex escalation. I would go with Patriot air defense systems to defend Ukrainian cities and the PAC-3 and the PAC-2 MSE versions of the missile to basically shoot down whatever Russian cruise missile or ballistic missile or from Iran comes in. So 
attackers for offensive capabilities and patriot for defensive capabilities are the two systems that I consider most needed by Ukraine. It's not going to help save soldiers' lives on the front, but it's going to help in the logistic fight and in preserving Ukrainian capability to heat the country and to provide electricity for the people and industry. So those two are for me the most important. Uh, thank you for answering that. And, and quick follow-up. Um, and, and uh, just, just before we go in, so, so what Thomas is referring to for those learning, uh, you know, staff officer and planning, the deep in a defensive uh, battle, the deep, the deep battle, deep fires are the most effective because that's what allows you to limit the enemy's attack on you. That's why it's so important. Sorry, go ahead. And uh, my follow-up, you said Patriot Systems. Um, what is your opinion on Assad? I, I'm sorry, I cannot probably pronounce it right, but it's T H A A D uh, air defense system that the United States also has. Um, it, I, can those be on the table as well? And just just your general, uh, uh, you know, take on those systems com- in comparison uh, to Patriot and in general in this conflict in in, in this war. At every system, you have to look at um, how. Um... How, the capacity, what, how good it is technological-wise, and the numbers. TAT is very new and has just been deployed and is mostly used as a ballistic missile defense. So there's not that many around, and the Americans have very few, and I don't think they will part with that. There's like 500 Patriot launchers standing around in America, and not all of them are in use. Lots of them are in storage for reserve units or units that are to be raised in case of war. So if uh, a country like Sweden that got Patriot, they ordered them newly built from Lockheed Martin. So it took two years, three years to build them and get them to Sweden. But if Biden agrees to say Patriot can go to Ukraine, the training is normally 20 weeks. I'm sure it can be cut down to 10 weeks. And there's enough around, like M777 and HIMARS, for America to give some. And if you just put, let's say, five systems into Ukraine, Kiev, Dnepro, uh, let's say, some Lviv, Linitsa, and so on, because the coverage is 200 kilometers against air threats, and someone correct me, I think it's 60... 40 or 60 kilometers against missile threats, you basically can protect all the most important Ukrainian cities with four or five batteries. Four or five batteries America can give like quickly and rapidly. So when looking at systems, you need to find a compromise with what can be brought into action very quickly and what has the capabilities you need. So the Italian-French SAMT system is also very good, but there's so few around that Ukraine can get at best two batteries, maybe three, if you're lucky, and then it's way two years for the next one. So that's not going to help. But Patriot, the Dutch have them, the Germans have them, the Spanish have them, the Greek have them, the Koreans also have them, I think, the Swedish have them, the Romanians have ordered them, the Swiss have ordered them, uh, the Polish have ordered them. There's an immense amount of missiles, there's an immense amount of launchers, there's raiders, and you can just go and grab it and get it up and running in no time. Actually, I was arguing since spring that Patriot should be sent to Ukraine. 
that we don't have it yet is really annoying. Yeah, Thomas, it's a question we get all the time, and I'm the one who seems to answer it, and I, I'm tired of being the only one. Uh, my first name, the way it is, I don't want people to think I'm being biased, even though I'm not Israeli. Um, we get questions all the time. Why doesn't Israel give all of its Patriot missiles to Ukraine? And uh, one of the things I try to explain to people is how small Israel is and how many Patriot batteries it has, um, that maybe they could protect half of Kiev Oblast, but I'm not sure it would do much else, and that would leave Israel with nothing. Um, why, why do you think that, why, is it just a misunderstanding people have, uh, not understanding the size of Israel? Like they don't just get it that, that, that there's, if, even if they were to give every single one that they had and leaving their, their, their skies defenseless, um, what would that do for Ukraine? How, how much of Ukraine could be covered by the batteries that cover um, Tel Aviv and Haifa and Jerusalem, which is basically, you know, a couple hundred kilometers squared? Um, I will take this question because I think I can answer that very detailed. Um, Israel, it never crossed my mind that Israel should give Ukraine air defense. Because Israel, what's the the biggest enemy of Israel? Iran and Iran's terror organizations, terror organizations that Iran supports, Hezbollah and Hamas. What is their weapon of choice? Missiles. Israel needs every single bit of missile to defend itself. If you want air defense, you have to go to America. That's the country where there's patriots standing around by the ton. What I want from Israel isn't air defense. I want from Israel spike, non-line-of-sight anti-tank missiles. So Ukrainian infantry can fire Ukraine infantry can use a drone to spot a Russian tank eight kilometers behind the front and use a missile to hit the tank. Spike non-line-of-sight missiles. That is what I want for Ukraine first. Second, what I want from Israel for Ukraine is Harop and Harpy loitering munitions or suicide drones. Why? Because these are cheap like the Iranian drones and you can swarm them and basically the harpies will fly and fly for hours over Russian lines looking for radar or electronic emitters. So signal stations, radars, jammers, the harpy will just circle and circle and find one and dive and destroy. The Russians won't be able to use any kind of uh, signal equipment that sends out radio signals. And the harp has a camera and it will circle and you can dive and it will destroy everything. And since you can use them in such swarms, you can overwhelm any kind of Russian air defense. And if you haven't looked at the Azerbaijan-Armenia war in 2020, the Azerbaijanis got Israeli harp and harpies, and basically the Armenians couldn't get a single tank, a single truck, a single vehicle into Karabakh because the moment it came close to the border, the Harops spotted it the moment it crossed the border. A Harop drone dove down, attacked it, and there's video of basically Harop drones coming down and flying in a truck through the open window and detonate inside. So once these drones are on the battlefield, the Russians cannot move anything anymore. They just have to have every vehicle continuously under some trees and hidden 
and those trees are right now losing their leaves. So I don't want Israel anything from Israel but suicide drones, electronic warfare equipment maybe, and non-line-of-sight spike anti-tank missiles because that's kind of like a javelin but with twice the range. Nice. At our next space laser meeting, I will bring it up, Thomas. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> all right. Uh, Chuck. Oh, oh, no. This is crazy. Everyone, I have to go. There are too many qualified people on the panel. We've got John Spencer coming up, and uh, I'm starting to feel very, very small. Chuck, am I a small guy? But I'm feeling small. No, you're absolutely ripped. I've, I've seen you chin yourself with one hand. And, uh... <laughs> and you can tread water for three minutes. By the way, Nuno is coming <laughs> too. Right. Uh, Thomas, as you were talking to Nuno, I sent him an invite. He's going to be here in a minute. This is crazy. All right, please, everyone, this is the time to retweet the space. This is truly an hour of power. We have, uh, we have superstars, Chuck, John, uh, Thomas, uh, my son, no, uh, <laughs> CJ, CJ's still here. CJ's not even talking. This is, if CJ's not talking, CJ and I, we're, we're right now the staff officers. We're at the back of the, uh, present, like the, the meeting room here and we're pressing the uh, PowerPoint slides for the big boys to talk. Big boys. Yeah. We don't, we don't have a table seat for this one, but that's, that's perfect. We've worked Definitely ourselves not. out of a job, as we say. That's fine. And that's fine. And that's fine too. All right, John. And welcome to just one thing I want to say, and I see that Olena Trade Group from the Ukrainian Anti-Corruption Commission is in our listening in to us for three hours now, and I'm like really impressed that that she is three hours here. So well, I have to bring her up. Let's bring her up too. Uh, just say no to corruption, Olena. We agree. Uh, but John, uh, something sparked your curiosity. Did you come up for anything in particular? You want to talk about tariffs? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, uh, you know, I studied in Nagorno-Karabakh war and went there as well. And yeah, I just want to second that uh, impact that the Harap had. I mean, the spike is, you know, I think the anti, if I, if I had a Christmas list, the spike would be on there. It just might not be as high as the Harap and the TB2s, more TB2s that the Ukrainians have shown how effective they can be with those. Um, it, it, and 100% agree. I'm I'm pretty um, interested today. I know we haven't brought it up today, but this belief that you know somehow Russia could mass with the Belarusian forces and make another run at Kiev, and, and how hilarious that comment is. Thomas, I have a thought that maybe Chuck wants to say something. Oh, Chuck. I, we spoke about Belarus. I gave my opinion about that, but it's completely ridiculous. So maybe someone else wants to speak about that now. Fair enough. Well, I think I'd only be supporting fires because uh, Mr. Lukashenko is walking an absolute tightrope. And uh, we've already seen pictures of him in previous years actually having to jump out of a helicopter carrying his own little crink-off rifle. Now, that's not something that uh, someone who's secure in their job has to do. I'm sure that he doesn't like to watch videos of Mr. Gaddafi being torn out of his car and torn to pieces in a roadside culvert. And there is a lot of question about whether or not his army would follow his orders to uh, invade Kiev. I don't think that's going to happen either. But uh, a mass threat uh, to the north is something that can't be ignored. But I will also point out that if Putin decides to order his soldiers south, 
to Kiev, I'm sure that some of them will remember what happened the last time they tried to get there. And this time, uh, their action won't come as any sort of surprise to anybody. And uh, there is something called a kill box, folks, and that is where you have cranked in every conceivable predetermined firing position with your artillery, and you just pray for somebody to wander in there. So my opinion, I'm sure, uh, matches John's and, John's and Thomas's as well. But uh, I think it's, it's still something to watch. Yeah, I, I was going to say when I was asking Thomas the question specifically about fires and uh, all the uh, the effects, the new effects that the Ukrainians have is that you know for the last seven months, probably the last four months in particular, every bit of terrain on every border crossing between Belarus and Ukraine has been sighted not once, not twice, a dozen times. It's got a look over by everyone, um, and those you call them kill boxes, we call them kill zones. Uh, you know, um, it, I, I, woe, woe be, woe unto whoever decides to cross that border. I think it'd be an absolute, um, bloodbath. And Thomas is right. I said they wouldn't get a kilometer in. He, he was right. It would definitely let them get in several kilometers so we can get more of them into that box, into that trap, right, Thomas? And that's where we're at. So, um, okay, we do have a bunch of people. Thomas. Just a quick three. point to the kill box. Kherson is a kill box. The Ukrainians want the Russians to send in infantry and send in infantry because that's the step. It's flat. You can hit them with artillery. You can hit them with HIMARS and you can kill masses of them. So the Ukrainians, if the Belarusians come over the border, they want to bring them in and say, look, there's a lot of forest. Fill that road in the forest. Fill it, fill it, fill it with troops. The more that more tightly packed the Belarusian troops are on this road, the better. Come on, bring more in. And then they're going to smite yeah. them. Well, you made a good point as well about Kherson, and I'd like to touch with John about that. So a lot of people, you know, criticized us on this place, ironically, we said that, that the Russians are moving troops over and the Ukrainians can dictate. The Ukrainians are dictating who comes across uh, in that they're leaving certain you know, avenues to bring in people on barges, not heavy equipment, but, you know, troops. And so why would they do that? exactly what you just said, Thomas. They want as many troops in the wrong place as possible. But John, doesn't that mean that when the final moment comes, those who don't surrender, what's Kherson going to look like with, uh, you know, 25,000 troops, maybe 10,000 surrender or treated? What happens with 15,000 uh, desperate Russians hanging around Kherson? Is, is there any urban ops game plan for the Ukrainians there? Or is it simply a matter of isolate and, uh, and, and force a surrender? John? Yeah, I mean, great question, and, and this is what we we teach in that course, right? So I personally believe that um, there's no Russians that are going to to do like an Avastol or Mariupol defender and just just fight for every inch. I just personally don't think so. The Ukrainians have done such a good job of setting the conditions to allow them to, you know, and, and set the conditions. Like they have the initiative, they have the momentum. It's it's their battle, uh, you know. There are approaches if the Russians are somehow stubborn and the the ones that do eventually get trapped, the 15,000 or so, there are a couple operational templates you can approach, like the bite and hold, um, just to, you know, the anaconda, just tighten the noose around these forces. But we've seen what, what happens if they can't retreat, um, if they have no back door, they don't fight to the death. They they surrender, and I think that's what we'll see in the future. 
and I too have gotten that a hundred times questions about, um, I personally don't think that Harrison was a feint for the Harkiv offensive. I think there are two separate operations and the enemy gets a vote. Uh, but you know, there's, there's no surprise. That's one of the things I, I've found you know, very interesting is just the, not only the, the weapons technology, but the Ukrainians intelligence is so good. And, and like Chuck has pointed out so many times, the partisan efforts that are going on inside the, special forces it's all this this intelligence picture that prevents the ukrainians from being surprised right if we know it then you can be dang sure that the ukrainians know it and surprise in warfare is everything so there's don't want to be no surprise to those forces in harrison um the, the surprise is on the russians on when the when is high mars o'clock so, John, when, with reference to the anaconda, we're gonna we're gonna choke and close it in quicker. Is there any point where you think that the Ukrainians would completely destroy every, uh, like the Antonovsky Bridge and uh, to passenger traffic, any of any, and and then every barge? Is there any is there any scenario where completely cutting them off and not even giving them a chance to leave is that is that ever in the cards? Or is it dependent on, on obviously, as you said, enemy has a vote. Um, is it is it somewhat better to perhaps leave some egress and also for your eventual bridgehead across that river? What, what, do, you, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it, it absolutely is, is a possibility, and that's a, a very high-level commander's decision on whether to, to lead them the Golden Bridge. I personally think that, that that isn't one of the favored courses of action, that if they can trap these forces and force surrender but if it's a, if it's a decision between destroying Harrison's infrastructure and city versus allowing for the golden bridge but we've seen that they've set that condition that to to not leave that open um, i think it's it's but it is a, an analysis like you know of the capabilities of the forces in that region with other priorities right the enemy is still getting a vote in other locations which do decide the assets to get assigned to the different fronts. So could they lead them this golden bridge that we call it? Maybe. I don't think that they would want to because the, you know, the strategic objective of Ukraine is to force the Russian military to culminate. That means that they can no longer continue operations offensive or, or de defensive. If they were to leave the golden bridge open, that could be a decision in order to save infrastructure and city. Um, but I think they've set the conditions to where they can reduce uh, that risk of destruction to increase the likelihood that they can kill or capture this force and take it away from the Russians so they can't pull it back in, and reconstitute it and push it to somewhere else. Um, if they ever decide that they just want to give up Harrison. Uh, but we're seeing that Putin's not doing that. He's doubling down, even in the in common sense rationale that the, the, the forces are just getting encircled more and more. And, you know, John, I, I, I agree with you, but I think, uh, you know, that the opportunity exists. The Russians have, have, by maintaining a presence around Kherson, they've put themselves in a in a almost ridiculous tactical position at this time. And uh, although Sun Tzu says build a golden bridge for a fleeing enemy, I think Ukraine is going to take the opportunity now to uh, defeat these people who've put themselves uh, between the jaws of the crocodile. And, uh, you know, uh, it's better to compel their surrender, which I think will be rather easy to do. And again, I always like to do this, bring it down to the squad level. Look, uh, these guys are undersupplied. They're underfed. Pretty soon they're going to be cold. 
and uh, it's pretty hard to swim a river that's a mile wide. So I, I think eventually we're going to see that front uh, collapse because I don't think uh, Mr. Putin has the political will to uh, allow competent generals to tell him the way things are, that the 49th Combined Army, Arms Army is in a almost untenable position being supplied by barges. Uh, they're widely spread. Uh, again, today, in the last 24 hours, uh, suppression of enemy air defense missions have destroyed eight more uh, Russian SAM sites. You know, working from outer space down, uh, this means a lot of things. This means that there's not going to be much Russian close air support to meet meet the Ukrainians as they converge on Kherson along all of its wide front. And uh, things are simply going to get more difficult for the Russians to defend all the territory that they're sort of stupidly clinging to right now. So I think this is a great opportunity to kick their butt because they're not smart enough to pull back and live to fight another day. No, I, I, I look to you for that that day-to-day tactical operations. So 100% agree with you um, that they that won't that that is an unlikely course of action. I just don't have the you know the overall Ukrainian operational picture, but definitely is in favor of them versus what the Ukrainian the Russians are you know just sticking to holding that ground. Um, I 100% agree with you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I will. Oh, I'm sorry, Thomas. Please go ahead. I just want to say, in my view, the Ukrainians want to destroy this Russian army crew, kill as many as possible, take as many prisoners as possible, because a defeat of that size will destabilize the Putin regime beyond repair. That's not a. The Russians have said we retreated from Kiev as a goodwill gesture. They said Kharkiv was a pre planned redeployment, losing a combined arms army, which is completely annihilated on the other side of the Kershon River in territory that Putin annexed. He can't say it was redeployed. It was redeployed three feet under. This is a defeat. He can't lie lie away to the Russian people. And that's why I think Ukraine will not let them escape. They will destroy them. Like at Stalingrad, the Germans were destroyed. Come winter, these Russians, even if they're still in hold of Kershaw, they will freeze, they will starve, they will surrender, or they will die, and Ukraine will have destroyed an army from which the regime of Putin will not recover. And that's it. I just uh, for yep. Chuck's going to uh, take the ball and run with it in a second. Or John, uh, I wanted to introduce everyone. We've got Nuno Felix here. So we've got special forces staff officers. We've got uh, uh, urban warfare specialists, top in the world. Uh, this is basically a military university right now. So we're going to start uh, uh, asking for tuition in, in terms of pizza for the pizza party in Crimea. Um, do uh, do give them a follow. We've got a great panel today. Thank you, everyone. This is the Maria Report. We've been here for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, going on eight months, speaking truth to power. 
highlighting what's going on in Ukraine from Ukrainian voices and experts uh, from around the world for analysis and understanding and, and for context. Um, do consider following us on, uh, on Twitter. The Maria Report handle is right at the top. And if you are inclined and you're able to, Maria.org is an excellent organization who do the best uh, work that we've seen. Uh, 100% volunteer, 100% of your donation goes to Ukraine. There are no administrative costs. Everyone who's here um, or at Maria Aid all uh, do this as on a volunteer basis. And all of our guests, by the way, who are world-class scholars, uh, recognized, published authors, they also come here for free. Uh, some of some people get paid to be on TV. We've had generals and all sorts of people. Everyone does it out of the goodness of their heart just to communicate with the audience. It's kind of like an information operation where we're sharing this information to the world. Um, and I'm proud to say that I volunteer my time with um, dozens of other people who volunteered as well. And I'm very honored to be a part of this team. Thank you to John Spencer, Colonel John Spencer from West Point, author of several books, Connected Soldiers. Check him out there, please. Um, great author, Chuck Ferrer, Navy SEAL, Commander, squadron leader uh, uh, at SEAL Team 6, um, kind of a superstar, if you ask me. He's also spent years in Hollywood, um, and he's a, one of the most creative and kind people I've ever met. Thomas Tyner uh, from Italy. He speaks German as well, though, and he was an artillery officer with an amazing knowledge base in, uh, in most things artillery. Um, if you've read Wikipedia on these things, if it sounds familiar, it's actually Thomas who wrote them. Uh, super, super intelligent. I, I can sense already he's got a, just from talking to him, a huge uh, knowledge of procurement and understands the NATO system very, very well. In fact, more than anyone I've ever met. And Nuno Felix, our friend from Portugal, always in the Algarve, always having fun. Special Forces was a sniper and uh, has a great breadth of experience. Uh, always a friend of the show. Love listening to him talk. Uh, basically, uh, this is uh, an amazing panel. CJ, uh, you might have heard him. He's a Ranger. Uh, they're from the States. They're sometimes turned out Rangers. Artillery officer as well. Uh, all in all, we have a great panel. Uh, please do retweet the space. Let people know that we're here uh, and we're talking about Ukraine and we're talking about the salient points. And this isn't, you know, uh, a two-minute blurb on the mainstream media. This is an in-depth discussion on the factors affecting the invasion of Ukraine and the subsequent genocide therein. Please do retweet the space, and thank you so very much for being here. On that note, Chuck had something to say to John, and I'm just going to let you guys go go at it. Have at her. Thank you. Yehuda, you are, you are <laughs> you're amazing. You, uh, you're here all the time, and every time I try to call you, you're on the show, so... <laughs> We'll carry on. I, you know what? I, I put this out for the panel and welcome, Nuno. It's always good to talk to you, friend. And we've just got a, a lot of horsepower here today. Uh, John and and Thomas and Nuno and uh, I, this is a this is a great place to uh, to learn. And uh, I think uh, as long as we've got these people here, uh, questions from the floor would be greatly appreciated but i'll i'll frame the next little segment by by saying as thomas pointed out uh it's necessary for these aggressor governments to spin their defeats uh as much as possible as as thomas pointed out their defeat in kharkiv was was tried they tried to sell that as a as a redeployment of forces an interesting way to do it if you leave literally thousands of prisoners behind you uh, the epic defeat of the Kiev salients uh, earlier in the war, again, uh, leaving thousands of dead in their wake, abandoned equipment, some of it 
very highly classified equipment, uh, satellite jamming units, uh, functional S300 batteries, etc. cetera. Uh, nobody wants to take their eye off Belarus and the, and the, the, the conspicuous maneuverings that are going on there, the very well-announced arrivals of Russian troops, uh, et cetera. But to frame this politically, I, I don't think, and I'd love to hear from the guys on the panel here, I don't think that Mr. Lukashenko would survive uh, either the deployment of his armed forces across the Ukrainian frontier, but more importantly, he wouldn't survive the virtually certain defeat and perhaps annihilation of his armed forces. Uh, I, I don't see that he will have the means to repress his people any longer. I don't think that he'll have the the political consensus to do it with his with his thug kleptocratic cadres, and I don't think his people uh, will will stand for it. Is, is that an assessment that? you'd make John or, or Thomas, what, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I'm not a Belarusian expert, but that's definitely from being in this space every day since the beginning, definitely what I've been told about Lukashenko's political stability. I mean, I personally think everything that he does is what he's told to do by Putin, but also within the line of what he thinks is feasible for his political, you know, his feeble or let's say tenuous, political position in that they're just like we saw earlier in the war with Belarus, uh, Moldova, other places there. Putin needs attention away from his losses. He, he's trying. I personally think he's trying to buy time. And I'm, I look to you, Chuck, to think how long this new Russian general has since they average you know, only a few weeks, which you are my citation for that, uh, how much longer he has. But no, I, I agree with the space is general consensus that Lukashenko doesn't have the ability to deploy his military into Ukraine. Questionable whether even a portion of the military would listen to that order. But I also think that, you know, the why, why, why now um, what's going on is that I, I think, I personally think Putin need, desperately needs attention drawn away from his losses. Yeah. I'll pick it up if I can, guys. Uh, regarding, first of all, uh, good evening to everyone. It's really a great panel to be here. I just, I took some time to get here, but here we are. So I agree with that assessment, uh, Chuck and both uh, Colonel Spencer did, which um, Lukashenko has a major problem, which is he tied himself politically uh, and his regime survival to Putin. Now. Lukashenko has been trying to avoid uh, stepping directly into this war since the early beginning of the war. Uh, Russians exerted some pressure on Lukashenko, but uh, from what we can tell from previous from the previous buildup and the previous operations uh, coming from Belarus, um, you let the Russians stage from there. But he offers them the logistical support. But the Belarusian army itself is not uh, keen on entering this operation. Now, Lukashenko, if you if you are all reminded, had massive protests after the elections. There's a government in exile for all purposes, 
so and Lukashenko is keenly aware that Lukashenko that Belarus isn't Russia, right? Uh, the options for Belarus is are uh, can be more diverse than the options for Russia on our side. Let's put it this way. So in that sense, I think he's uh, pretty much staking his political survivor, survival of trying to dodge entering this war. Now, the Russians really need um, a new front, or they at least need a fixing operation up north, which I believe it's what's, what they are trying to do, a fixing operation up north, so that Ukraine cannot move uh, some of the forces that are still in the north uh, to more active fronts like Kherson and the Eastern Front. In that sense, um, Lukashenko is playing his role, but I don't believe for a minute, uh, not with the data we have, that Lukashenko has shifted and uh, is seeking to enter uh, the war on Russia's side. That said, uh, everything is possible, of course. Uh, we never know what's cooking there. But, I mean, honestly, I don't believe uh, Lukashenko will enter the war. We may be facing a fixing operation up north to try and fix uh, some uh, Ukrainian forces up there while the Russians reconstitute other fronts with uh, newly mobilized uh, forces the best they can. Some people call it a demonstration. You say it's a fix. I think it's a demonstration personally, but I will ask this for you, the gentleman on the panel. Um, it's a question we get a lot. Where is Ukraine going to be when the snow falls? Will it, will it be east of the Dnipro and a Kherson collapsed? Will it be all of Luhansk and just Donetsk in Russian, Russian Donetsk in Russian control with Ukrainians oriented south in Luhansk? Uh, is it all the way up to Melitopol or Mariupol? If you, instead of where will they be, where would you, where would you like to be if you were a Ukrainian commander? We'll just go through the panel. We'll go John, Chuck, Thomas, Ni, and Nuno. Uh, where would you want to be? Uh, realistically, obviously, not not right Did you hear me? But... Nuno. Nuno, you can't hear you today. Um, maybe oh, drop no. off, come back. Okay, Nuno. It's a glitch. You could get a lot. Yes, blame it on me. Uh, I suppose that's the, the reason. So, uh, okay, um, thanks, man. Uh, drop the listener, quit the app, come back. You'll be done in 10 seconds. We'll be back up. Okay, we're going to, you know, we'll come back. Uh, so, John, uh, realistically speaking, let's assume, let's make an assumption. Harrison will fall uh, before winter really kicks in and uh, and, and the Ukrainians should have access, should have uh control of everything west of the Dnipro um, or not. What do you, where would you like to be situated if you were a Ukrainian commander and, and, and all things being equal? We'll start with John, we'll Chuck, Thomas, and then Nuno. Go ahead. Uh, that's, that's a tough one. Predictions are hard. Um, I think... No, it's not prediction. Where would you like to be? Like, where, oh, where if, I would if, like to be? Okay. Yeah, where would you... I would like, yeah. yeah, no, no, okay, I got it. Uh, I would like the winter to crush the soul of every Russian soldier west of the Dnieper. Um, Ukraine postured strongly um, in the Harrison Oblast, um, controlling everything west of the Dnieper uh, in, in a new in new battle positions that can range, you know, don't need to cross the river, can now can range um, and, and make Ukrainian or Russian positions more more fragile. I would also like to see Bakhmut 
secure um, and really Severe Donetsk and Lysychansk, uh unfavorable positions for Russians at that moment. Uh, but I, I really, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a soldier at heart. I'm a grunt at heart. I, I'm waiting and, and hoping. Uh, where do I want as a Ukrainian that the winter crushes the soul? And I, like Nino's mentioned, it wasn't fighting that 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 ended Stalingrad, the greatest defeat and the turning point in the war for the Germans. It was cutting off the logistical supplies, and it was a commander on the ground disobeying. Hitler's orders and surrendering his men because they were dying of winter injuries and starvation. So that, that's where I want to be. So you'd like to see the Ukrainians attrit the Russians over the winter. There's no rush on Kherson City in your mind. You, you, you would you would want to attrit them through the winter, John? Right. I want to surrender. I agree with everybody that we don't want those 15,000 to be able to be pulled back in any way. We, I want those to surrender or die. Um, and then I, I, I want by the before next year, especially Harrison City to be in Ukrainian hands and re, you know, all the work that has to be done to, to, uh, you know, rehabilitate it, getting you know, discovering the horrors and you know, getting everything back into the Ukrainian territory. I would like to see that before the end of the year. Tracking truck. Oop. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I agree with John, and uh, you know, the the Dnipro is is serving uh, a couple of purposes right now. Right now, it is a barrier and an impediment to Russian logistics uh, in terms of supplying the 49th Combined Arms Army in Kherson, uh, but also it is a barrier to the timely reinforcement of uh, tactically stressed units north of the Dnipro. So uh, right now, it, it's a barrier to the Russians. Um, when the axe falls on Kherson and when the Ukrainians uh, start to uh, unleash a serious round of maneuver warfare on, on, these, on these forces north of the Dnipro, uh, that that river is then going to serve as a bastion and a wall and a defensive uh, arrangement uh, for the Ukrainians. Um, I don't I don't think that Kherson itself, the urban area, necessarily needs to be attacked. Uh, certainly, it doesn't need to be attacked down the M14 highway, which uh, connects Mikolaev and and Kherson. Uh, that is a direction in which the Russian uh, forces are principally oriented. They've had quite a bit of time to, to establish uh, defensive operations and defensive planning in that area, interlocking fields of fire, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but it, it's, it's going to come. The Ukrainians are going to attack. And uh, we're we're just we're we're going to see that uh, that everything we've been talking about uh, how difficult it is to resupply this this army of occupation uh, how it should have been pulled back and how it's going to be much too late for the Russians to do anything about it when this blow uh, comes both in terms of of as I said supplying them but also importantly reinforcing them. Or even giving them maneuver oper uh, 
options to retreat because this river is at their back. There are no bridges left or they've been interdicted. And uh, the pontoons are just uh, in this day and age, a pontoon bridge is is pretty much worthless. It it has to be protected uh, by counter battery radars. It has to be protected uh, by by every means possible, because we live in an age where where a couple of 155 millimeter Excalibur shells are going to go exactly into the pontoon section that you're trying to hit. And, uh, you know, the world has changed for the Russians. Interesting. Thomas, what do you, what, so, so uh, we've got two, two for leaving, for letting the, well, almost third of Russian uh, combat powers in Kherson. So uh, I guess it's a huge resupply effort. So uh, both uh, John and, and Chuck are saying, uh, let them sit there and, uh, and resupply while you pound them. Uh, what do you say, Thomas? Okay, I have a bit a different opinion. If I could get my wish where I want to be in winter, I want to see the Russians in Hershon crushed as a signal to all the other Russians. Then I want the Crimean bridge to completely get smited, destroyed, blown up, ripped to pieces. Because then you have a gigantic Hershon-like sack of Russian troops in Crimea, in south of the Dnipro, and today, you know, in south of Zaporozhye. And then, since the Russians can resupply most easily the troops around Luhansk and Donetsk, I would remove the brigades freed up from the liberation of Kherson to make the Russian to again, like the Ukrainians did, have two centers of attack, centers of gravity. One in the north of Luhansk to basically liberate the territory that the Russians took this spring in northern Luhansk. But this is like a secondary attack. And the other attack, I would try to go down somewhere south of Zaporozhye towards Berdyansk on the uh, Azov Sea. It doesn't have to go down very much, but just enough for all the Russian troops that are in Crimea and around Melitopol and there, to understand Crimean bridge is crushed. The Ukrainians are coming down toward Berdyansk. If the Ukrainians reach Berdyansk, these Russian troops have no escape. And then let the Russians try to escape around Berdyansk, this one road, and just shell them when they try to go away. That's what I would do. So for me, the war would end when the Ukrainian troops reach Melitopol and then move down towards Crimea, because at that point, the Russian military is just being routed. But um, as a signal to the Russians, I want the troops in Hershon to be crushed. Yeah. And I'm more on that angle, because I think there's also a political factor. They're, these are recently conquered territories, so they're stealing and kidnapping and deporting more Ukrainians. So as much as I'd like to see them attributed in Kherson, I think it'd be better if, if it was possible to have them crush in Kherson, push east, down from Zaporizhia, somewhere around Melita Pole. That's where I'd like to start my winter. But that's just me. Nuno, what about you? I believe that uh, we need, to, I agree with Thomas, we need to crush them in, uh, Ukraine needs to crush them uh, in uh, Kherson because uh, Kherson is the key to 
to unlocking uh, the operations around Melitopol. And it's almost, it's also a political victory of the highest order. It's as some, as Thomas was saying, that's something that Putin cannot um, explain away. Way out, lie his way out. Basically, that's it. They cannot lie their way out of losing Kherson. It's a major blow. The moment you hit those forces, the moment those forces start to surrender, for instance, there's no way uh, out for for the Russian army to lie their way about this. And it will have a repercussion across all of the fronts, especially in the south. Because in the south, they'll have major issues uh, with Melitopol. And Thomas is right, and I believe everyone here agrees that uh, Melitopol is basically the place where you break this because the moment you cut the corridor to Crimea, uh, all the gains made during this this whole war have gone up in smoke and you have a bunch of isolated forces of the Russian Federation with, with no uh, geographic continuum. The moment you break that, it's the moment uh, you can, uh, the Russian forces need to to make a choice, you you basically yeah. compounding their problems. Well, the thing is, even if you know, as, as Thomas and you indicated, uh, taking Berdyansk and, and and that area would be a a, sign, a symbol to the Russians. The truth is, at that point, it's still too late for them because, as you said, they can interdict them on the one road out. It would almost be uh, perhaps perhaps I have an idea from what you've said all from what all from everything that all of you have said is maybe that'll be a negotiation. Uh, we'll let you repatriate the Russian soldiers in Crimea if you evacuate it nicely and we take over. That's a negotiation of sorts. Uh, I like negotiations now. Um, I don't know if you heard us, Nuno, earlier. I was saying that the negotiation should start as how wide should the demilitarized zone within Russia be after the war? Is it 50 kilometers? Is it 75 kilometers? And, and what peacekeeper shall we put there? UN, NATO, EU? I think we need to start being serious about the concept of negotiation, because unfortunately, some of the people in the uh, in this space or in, in in the Twitter world or social media think that negotiations begin with how much of Ukraine do we let Russia keep, and I think most of us are not about that. We've got two great questioners up. Um, if you could, Cajun and Charlie, would you be so kind as to? Uh, well, first we'll go to Nino first, but Nino, no, 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 Nino is Italian. Uh, let's go to Cajun and Charlie. Please ask a question for all four members, something that, that they can all relate to. And Nuno with a follow-up first. Go ahead, Nuno. Just uh, a quick point on that. This is all, uh, everything in this war is about creating the necessary condition for Ukraine to negotiate from a position of strength. Let's not face this. This is not the moment for negotiations. You do not negotiate when you're shaping the environment uh, for additional, uh, for uh, to have a better uh, leverage, to have more leverage and a better position in future negotiations. Nobody's marching to Moscow, right? But, but if Ukraine uh, needs to come out of this hole in its in territorial integrity, and if you, we can use that to leverage the Russian government and the, the Russian elite for a change. Now, even if you're dealing with Putin again, still, for some reason, which I do not find very hard to, to, for us to be dealing with, the real issue here is 
at this juncture, there's no negotiation because the situation favors Ukraine. And I've seen a lot of people on the social media saying winter, general, winter. Well, I got news for you. General winter works both ways, right? The better equipped, the more... Uh, on a home the terrain. Better, the better equipped, the better trained, the better supplied army will usually, uh, operating in its own lines, will usually uh, dominate general winter and use winter to its favor. There you go. All right, let's go to some questions here. So let's go. Cajun was first. Charlie, unless, Doman, did you have a a, a special... No, later Okay, let's go Cajun and then Charlie. Hey, guys. What a great panel. And my, my, my question is uh, is really kind of simple. Um, I'm old enough, as is, are several people on the panel and the audience, to re- old enough to remember the dreaded Russian forces in Transnistria, how they were going to sweep out of Transnistria and attack Odessa from the west side and all these terrible things were going to happen and they were going to cut off uh, uh, the Ukrainians, uh, uh, Ukrainian supplies from uh, Romania. Uh, how, and, and all that was just simple posturing for internal uh, uh, Russian uh, media consumption and, and grist for the Vatnik social media mill. It seems to me that this whole Belarusian thing is not far removed from uh, the, the threat of uh, Belarus entering the war is, is not any different than the whole army in Transnistria. Does anybody see this any differently? Thanks. Who wants to take that first? I think I will because I have to leave soon uh, because I want some dinner. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Um, now, Belarus is absolutely not a risk at now because, I mean, there is an government in exile. There's the Polish intelligence agencies, the Ukrainian intelligence agencies, the CIA, the NSA, the DIA, all these intelligence agencies that have penetrated the Belarusian military from top to bottom, and nobody sees any preparations for a real attack. This is just shifting around forces to force Ukraine to keep troops along the border. Same with Transnistria, because that was even more jokey. Lukashenko wants to stay in power forever and attacking Ukraine is in the role of Mussolini, just with a much less competent army than the Italians in World War II. And that says something, okay? Because the Italians were one of the least competent armies in World War II. So Lukashenko is a mini Mussolini with a worse army, a worse economy, a worse technological basis compared to other nations. If you take it as a basis level like 1940 to 2022, and he is going into a much less favorable terrain with less troops than the enemy. It's kind of like it's suicidal. So Putin doesn't care. He is Putin doesn't care at all. If Lukashenko has to die, Putin doesn't care. But Lukashenko doesn't want to die. So as long as Putin doesn't put a gun to his head, I doubt that Lukashenko will go into this war. All right. Any uh, follow-up from Chuck or John? No, I agree absolutely with with Thomas. It's uh, uh, it, it would be suicide for Lukashenko, and look, he he's in it for number one, right? Uh, plus, anybody he sends over the border, I, I mean, I could literally see these units uh, running up a new flag on mass 
changing sides as intact formations. Uh, Lukashenko can't risk that. And uh, on top of that, I don't know if anyone's watched the latest uh, Special Operations Forces uh, capability exercise conducted by Lukashenko. Uh, it looks pretty pathetic. Cirque du Soleil? The Cirque, yeah. Cirque du Soleil one? Cirque, yeah. Cirque, yeah. Cirque de, uh, I don't know, circle the drain. Uh, you know, it was laughable. And uh, I don't think but it was. Gonna... It was colorful and it did have a bit of a groove to it. And somebody knows how to operate a smoke grenade, and I'm sure that took 26 weeks to learn how to do that. There you go. Uh, let's go, uh, John. I think that's we've 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 talked about uh, about Belarus. I think sufficiently. I don't know if you want to chime in, or we'll grab the next question, John. No, I 100 percent agree. And like I said before, I think it's a Putin needs attention away from his defeats. I mean, I, I am like we all. There's a difference between Belarusian forces joining in. And Lukashenko allowing again, and he should be held accountable for the Russians to use Belarus as a staging base to present a front, another front that the Ukrainians have to commit, um, even though it's not, you know, they have no chance at accomplishing anything other than diverting uh, attention, a small force, something like that. So there's there's a slight difference there, though, between the Transnistria and Belarus as a staging place, and we see Russian newly minted train for two days to two weeks um, being put in Belarus for some, you know, the grand master strategist of Putin's ideals that we have seen uh, make him a very historic figure in my mind as the worst military strategist of the modern era. 100%. Uh, let's go to Charlie. Uh, Charlie, Tom's been trying to get up. So uh, let's grab uh, Charlie's then Tom then Alan. Go ahead, Charlie. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, coming back to the Kherson pocket, um, clearly destroying the enemy's ability to fight is optimal. Uh, but my question is, is, is for Ukrainian leadership, does the welfare of the remaining population in Kherson enter the calculation? In other words, at what point does speed and liberation trump isolating the pocket and destroying the forces? I will quickly say something. I have friends from Kherson who actually fled from there and they still have the fathers there to protect their family homes and so on. This city has been emptied of most people because the pro-Ukrainians all fled because obviously the Russians were going house to house looking for pro-Ukrainians, taking them away. And you can imagine what happens when the fascists take people away in the night and these people are never seen again. Um, so all these people fled the city. The city is almost empty. Um, you don't want to destroy the city, right? So, but the thing is, you just have to attack on the north, because when you reach the bridge that is to the north of Kherson city at the Antonovsky Bridge, which is actually north of the city, the remaining Russians have Ukrainians to their west, Ukrainians to the north, a mile-wide river to their east, and the Black Sea to their south. And that's it. And it's winter and there's no food coming in, no heating, and they can't swim through the river because they will die of hypothermia. So um, there's no big problem for Ukraine to take the city because it's basically like Stalingrad. It was emptied of civilians, obviously. And just Ukraine will want to not destroy the city because then you have to rebuild it. But 
I don't see a problem for the Ukrainians here that uh, they have to think about lots of civilians because the population has gone down by 80, 90 percent. 100 percent. Chuck, anything you want to chime in there? Chuck and Nuno. Also, to our friends uh, from uh, Ripley's Heroes, always told me great things about Jay. If you're able to pop in, send you a little DM, it'd be great to have you. Uh, Chuck and Nuno, anything to add on to Herson Pocket? Well, uh, I, I, I do uh, slightly. Uh, of course, we, we've we've seen what Russian troops are willing to do to non-combatants, civilians, uh, children, women, etc. Uh, but but again, uh, you know, Kherson is permeated with uh, Ukrainian patriots. Uh, some of those are active uh, uh, partisans involved in direct action, and a much greater portion of those people are feeding intelligence uh, uh, directly uh, into the battery commanders of uh, surrounding Ukrainian artillery units. Um, it's, a, it's a very good question, uh, race against time. Uh, but I, I think any effort that the Russians take in diverting, murdering, killing, transporting uh, innocent Ukrainians, uh, those soldiers are not conducting the defense of Kherson. So the Russian commanders uh, have a balancing act, right? Do you do you let people rape, killing, murder, uh, throw people into the river, or do you have them man the defensive works around the city? Uh, so uh, as awful as it is, this is a calculus that uh, even the Russians can understand, that uh, senseless brutality is not going to keep the, U the Ukrainians from... Uh, slicing in uh, on their on their terrain. And again, I don't know when the Kherson pocket is going to co collapse, but it is inevitable. It's inevitable. 100%. All right. So we're going to grab a question from Tom, then Alan. Tom, go ahead. Tom's our resident psychologist from the United Kingdom, and he had a question for the panel. Go ahead. Sorry, Tom. Yeah, thanks for letting me up, Yehuda. Um, thanks very much for joining us, guys. Um, I was wondering how this might end. I know that Thomas said earlier that he doesn't think that Putin will survive losing this war, and I'm inclined to agree with him. And Thomas was saying that perhaps uh, mid-level army officers might uh, kill Putin. And I wondered if the panel could say something as to what that might look like. I know it's a bit of a vague question, but it seems like Russia's more of a police state than a military state. And what I mean by that is that, like, police and sort of secret service type, uh, the Siloviki basically seem to be, there seems to be a lot more money and power in their hands than in the military. So what might a palace coup look like? Should I take it? Yes, Thomas, I'd love to, I'd love to follow you instead of go in front of you. <laughs> okay. Same here, same here. Okay. Um, the thing is, if I look at coups that have been undertaken, like in Africa, most coups are now by captains or majors. Um, the thing is that in Russia, they lead divisions that should protect the regime. The first guards tank army around Moscow is basically doesn't exist anymore. It was destroyed in Ukraine by Ukrainian advances, artillery and just the Ukrainian fighting spirit. So. There is still officers in Moscow because there are school and ministries. And how would it look like? It would look like very much like the coup that the German military tried against Hitler, you know? 
Um, basically, the mid-level officers in the general staff are fed up with what is up there. and They need to kill the dictator because when he's gone, why should some unit fight for Putin if Putin is dead? So the thing is how to kill him as a start for a coup. And I think that's the problem that the officers have to answer. Um, there's a guard regiment that Putin has. If that's in, then it's really, really easy. Like with the Tsars, you know, if you wanted to, your father have, if like a Tsar that had been unpopular and his son wanted to take over, he just got the guard officers to kill his father. Happened quite a few times in the Russian Tsar family. And so if the guard regiment is in, Putin is dead. If the FSB special detachment and the federal security officers FSO, Federal Security Office or officers are in that protect Putin and state government officials are in. It's also very easy. If not, the officers have to figure out what to do. And basically after that, you will see everybody in the regime will be like, oh, I always was against Putin. They will all switch sides once he is dead. Just look at Romania, Ceausescu. Until he left, his uh, secret service people tried to fight the revolution. When he was dead, the secret service people decided to melt away and disappear and form political parties. And that will happen in Russia, too. So um, for me, the question is, uh, is there a way the CIA can help Russian disgruntled officers whack Putin? That would be mm, beautiful. Like give them some spike anti-tank missiles or javelins to blow up his car or his helicopter or something. Um, and after that, there's some a handful of regime loyalists that will go down with Putin, like Shoigu and Gerasimov. You find them, you line them up, you shoot them. Why should a unit, let's say in Siberia, fight for Putin if Putin is dead and his body dumped in the Moskva? It's a very simple question. If he survives like Hitler did on the 20th of July in Germany, you have a problem. So what the Russian junior, office, junior officers need to do is to make sure they kill him. And how, protect, how protected is he, Thomas? Psychopathically protected. It's, it's better protected than the American president. So that's the problem. But, you know, in Russia, everyone is corrupt. Everyone. So it's just a question of finding those unit, um, those officers in Putin's protection details that are fed up to or susceptible to. Would you like to be a general and have a nice villa? Just a question. But you know, or, it should be yeah. our policy to support that. No, maybe the CIA is already doing that. We we won't know, will we? Way nope. above our pay grade. Mm. Thomas, are you going to leave us? I don't want to be rude and disrespectful of your time. I understand you're hungry. Um, the thing is, I see that there's a hand from Domen up. I think he had a question. If it's for me, I will stay and answer it. If it's not there for me, go. It's, a, I... it's, a, it's a short question. I think you're gonna. I think you're gonna enjoy it, Thomas. Um, it's a question for the whole panel, but but let's let's have Thomas go first. Yeah. So um, imagine that there's a big war going on, and uh, you're all called in. You know, former, currently serving officers, um, NCOs, whatever. So, Thomas, you're assigned an airborne special forces company to lead. Colonel Spencer, you know, Heimer's battery. Chuck, 
tank battalion, that seems like your thing. Nuno, artillery battery, Yehuda, I mean, you just scream like an attack helicopter wing Air commander. Force. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. CJ, you know, maybe you get a frigate to command. How's that going to end up? Because that seems awfully like um, some testimonies from Russia coming in from, uh, you know, former officers being called up during this mobilization and uh, assigned very different roles from what they're actually trained to perform. I think I will go first. Look, if I'm assigned a unit that isn't artillery or some staff unit, doing some planning about disrupting logistics and fire missions, if I'm like told you had a special forces unit, um, I would hope that I have a competent non-commissioned officers who knocks me over the head and lets me lie there and takes command of the unit and saves everybody's lives because I have no clue how to command a special forces unit and I wouldn't want it. So what the Russians are doing, throwing officers of all kinds of backgrounds into completely unrelated units. I mean, I'm Alpini, I'm light infantry. I have no clue about tank tactics, so I couldn't command it. And the Russians put sailors and naval officers and aviation officers into tanks and sent them into battle. And it didn't work out very well. So my old non-commissioned officer, who was named Italian Tempesta, which in English is Storm, I know for sure he would knock me out and take command. So I can only hope that everyone gets, like if you get to command a frigate, CJ, I hope that there is some commander in there that says, you know what, Captain, sit down in your cabin and don't touch anything. Because obviously we have a responsibility to the men that we command or that we work with or that we have in our units. And I wouldn't want to go anywhere that I don't have a very clear understanding of what I'm doing and that I can bring absolutely no harm to the man with me. It's completely clear that I would never, ever even accept such a command. Clear as day. And spoken like someone who knows what's going on, and I don't think there's many Russian officers who would decline the command or not feel themselves completely uh, empowered to make those bad decisions. And, and furthermore, in their top-down micromanagerial style, insist that their orders, however ridiculous, be carried out to the letter. And that is one of the problems. And I agree with Thomas, absolutely. Hopefully some master chief would take me by the necktie and, uh, you know, tell me to sit down until uh, he figures this out. So that's the difference between a NATO-trained army, Western army, and our armed forces, or or what we've got on the other side of the equation here. Uh, just, just the fact that those are the first words out of Thomas's mouth, and I'm sure they'd be the first out of John's and Nuno's as well, uh, that was the way we were trained uh, from the time we were all junior officers uh, to listen, because this is a profession and a bit of a pilgrimage and, uh, you know, and a meritocracy that you join. And uh, it's best to listen and learn. And all of us, I know, have taken uh, felt really responsible for the men 
uh, that we've been we've been put in charge of. Uh, they were the most precious resource I had. And when I was a young SEAL, I had a Master Chief tell me, and I never forgot it, that although I was carrying an M4, the platoon was my weapon. And I was supposed to take care of it and make sure it was well lubricated, fed, watered, and everything else. And the platoon came first. And um, mm. that's the difference. Wise words. Wise words from the Master Chief. Speaking of chiefs, uh, Nuno, NCO perspective. Go for it. First of all, I'm an NCO. Second, I don't know oh. a thing about artillery to artillery. I defer to Thomas and CJ who are artillery guys. I don't know the first thing about artillery. If anybody says, how could I manage an artillery battery? No, I couldn't. Period. No, for sure. All right. But Period. before before we go on, I th- I'm sorry. I thought you I thought you were a chief. That's why I said the NCO. No, no, I'm an NCO. I'm an NCO. Definitely an NCO. Uh, first sergeant. Yeah, okay. Close enough. You, you you got the experience. I just wanted to give you a cre- credit because we all we all look up to. No, uh, no, no. I, I left the service as a first sergeant. Okay, no worries. Uh, but um, the honestly, uh, of course, I agree with Thomas, and I would. I don't know first thing about artillery. Uh, I'd say to the to the officer, listen, you stay here with you with the big gun. Give me a rifle, and I'll go uh, shoot somebody at six hundred yards. It's what I know how to do. So, um, not uh, definitely not, and I agree with with because NCOs are a critical part of an operation, like especially, particularly in special forces, but everywhere in a, in an army. And we have seen this with Russia. The I think everyone here agrees that uh, the absence of a professional NCO corps is one of the critical mistakes the Russian army uh, made while designing its force stru- structure. Because um, when they uh, they back in I believe 2010 something like that they delved into that, but then when Shoigu assumed and Garasimov assumed the the general staff they went back to the old ways fortunately fortunately, but eventually uh, one of we we've seen uh, we've seen the how much uh, a professional NCO and here I'm being biased. How much a professional NCO uh, for is important to all venues of military operations. It's and I think Chuck was an officer, Thomas too, CJ is an officer. Uh, they rely extremely uh, on their uh, uh, NCOs to make sure that everything is executed and that the force is ready. And the force can can deploy and can uh, uh, complete its mission. I think that's something that we've seen uh, lacks the Russian uh, military very much, and it hampers the Russian military very much. Yeah, I'll say it clearly. Any any officer, uh, people ask. It goes back to the whole decentralized and centralized conversation. People ask why are, why are the NATO countries or Western countries' military so much more effective? What's wrong with the Russian military? Um, as I said, because, you know, I wanted to give credit to Nuno because of his position, even still a sergeant, doesn't matter if a sergeant major, we don't have first sergeants in Canada, but the same point, and that is this, every officer that I've ever met in, in, that has ever failed as an officer, uh, not in the military anymore, has been an officer that has never, li- has not respected or not listened intently to, to his or her NCO. In other words, uh, NCOs 
you know, are the, are, are, are the, are the wheels that turn the army or the military. Um, whereas in the Russian world, an NCO is a glorified private. Uh, a sergeant is a gopher to you. There's no, it's not a two-way street. There's no communication. You say, and they do. Obviously in our militaries, we have leadership, we have chain of command, but, um, any junior officer who doesn't shut up and listen to, uh, to their, uh, you know, sergeant majors or chief warrants or warrants, uh, is not an officer that's going to have a good time in the military, and it's probably not going to be in the military for long. It's a very important understanding. Usually NCOs in our armies are older, uh, with much more experience, and then a, a, a second lieutenant. Lieutenant could be in their early 20s. Uh, there's no way that that lieutenant knows more than that 40-year-old sergeant major, um, and that's why you shut up and listen. You know, They might call you sir or ma'am, but they probably don't mean it. That's the joke. Um, we We... we <laughs> <laughs> and well, I mean, and a, a second lieutenant is always lost, and uh, a major is basically a second lieutenant who can read and write. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so I, Guys, I was once I, I was once taken aside by a regimental sergeant major who said to me, as a lieutenant, I, I had come in, I was trying to help out, I just come off course, I was full of uh, vim and vigor, and I tried to I was telling the sergeant, oh maybe, da da da, da and the sergeant major came over and he said to me, sir. Do you know why you were called an officer? And I said, no. And he goes, because you should be in your office. And uh, I took the hint and I left the parade square. Um, it's it's that type of, a, now that wouldn't happen in the Russian military, right? That you know, people would be shooting people. But uh, yeah, Ch Chuck, you wanted to jump in? I, yeah, and I, uh, I, I would say this in, uh, I, th I think the SEALs are, are, are not necessarily unique in this. But uh, we have an extremely collegial uh, relationship uh, in in the SEAL teams. Um, at SEAL Team Six, it, it it was literally a first name basis because it took a lot it, it took a lot to be selected uh, for the command. It took a lot to get through the selection course uh, green team that that got you into the command. Uh, everybody there was pretty much the best there there was. Uh, and as an officer, first as an assault element commander, and later, in my case, as, as a squadron uh, leader, uh, you, you didn't get there unless you were working with people that you absolutely trusted. And you you didn't get there without realizing that these were some of the master practitioners of this craft in the entire world. And uh, from the from the first day, a young officer, a young ensign, gets out of buds. Uh, just just as you're saying, Yehuda, you you know you're you're 23 years old, and you're talking with a you're talking with a master chief who's 40 years old, and he's got the Navy Cross, so. You you should get his opinions on the tactical arrangements, and you, you should you should solicit his input, and not just solicit his input. You should you should listen to it. You sh you should listen to it, and it, it was really wonderful to work in that sort of environment, um, to be surrounded by that much talent, that that much knowledge, but it didn't let you off the hook. You you were the officer. And you were responsible for that operation, and you had to command it as well. But it was a fine line you walked. Yeah, hundred percent. This is 
again, so to our listeners, this is empirically, at the end of the day, this is the difference between the Ukrainians and the Russians and the Russians and the rest of the world that fights the way we do. We respect the people we work with. They're not our slaves. They're not garbage. They're not dummies. They're not people that you say when a guy in front of you falls down, pick up his rifle and keep going. Um, you need to inspire confidence and, and, and demonstrate competency to your, to your team. And so that's the important part. Nuno, then we're going to go to Alan, has a good question for the whole panel. Nuno, then Alan. I, I have to say that my unit, uh, it's same as Chuck. I mean, I've worked with plenty of officers. First of all, uh, officers did training, uh, the course, the qualification course and selection was all done with the sergeants together with the NCOs. Uh, and that gave us a, a bond from the start. And then uh, the unit was operated in 12 to 16 man teams. And that uh, gave us a first name basis. And we all ended up, even the officers, deferring to the most senior uh, chief, uh, the most senior chiefs, the, the command sergeant majors, and that kind of people were um, in the staff sergeants were basically uh, guys with years and years of operational experience. So in that sense, uh, we are pretty much the same. There you go. All right, Alan, professional broadcaster, 40 years. He's got a great question for you. Go ahead, Alan. Uh, thanks, Yehuda. So uh, Chuck spoke uh, just now about listening and learning, uh, because this is the professional approach of, of every NATO uh, army. Uh, other uh, armies around the world, South Korea, Australia, etc. And every war is an opportunity to watch and learn, to learn specifically how to fight on the next war's battlefields. I understand every war is unique. Uh, battlefields change. So my question for Chuck and, and Thomas and Nuno, CJ, you also, Yehuda, as you have watched this war, against Ukraine unfold. Are there assumptions you had on February 24th uh, that you've given up? And what lessons have you learned about uh, the future battlefield, uh, about uh, force deployment, tanks, missiles, drones, uh, anything else you want to add to that? I know it's a very broad question, it's a broad but question. I am it's a big fascinated. One. Fascinated to hear your answers. It's a well, it's it's a it's a free run for everyone. I'll kick it off. Uh, you know, Simon Cowell with Susan Boyle when she came on, and he said the minute she walked on stage, I expected that. I knew that was going to happen. Uh, no, uh, I don't think anyone at all can say with a clear conscience that they expected this. I think I, I would say I'm in, with Colonel Lake on the side of the Ukrainians are super well-trained, they're motivated, um, but no one really, I don't think anyone really uh, expected the Russians to be so bad. I mean, I love Thomas because he says the things that's in my mind um, that I feel I can't say publicly, but he'll often use the words junk and garbage. And I really, I can't stress how, how, how precise those terms are because we saw it from the very beginning and it was the first week, and then the second and the third, and then it became a pattern. And I realized that, in fact, the Russians are nothing what they train us in staff colleges to do. When they train us to fight this, you know, you know, vague enemy, Ariana, Utopians, and all sorts of different names, um, 
we're obviously looking at Russian equipment and we expect them to behave a certain way in the battlefield. We expect them to withdraw after sustaining certain casualties, to regroup, to reconstitute somewhere else, to form a combat, uh, to form a, a unit that's combat effective against me later on. But none of that was true. So from my perspective, they're, they just, they're, 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 they're underwhelming conduct in the first, not just week, forget the week, let's give it a mulligan, but in the first month or so, and just the videos upon videos of decimated Russian units with seemingly no understanding of tactics whatsoever on the basic level, no tradecraft, the, the, the defensive positions that look like garbage dumps. From one end of the spectrum to the other, I saw nothing that resembled a professional army. So if you extrapolate that and pull it all the way through, whether it's their Navy, the top ship of the line, boom, done, children manning the air defense, who knows? It's a, it's a nightmare. So for me, uh, you know, maybe better assessment of enemy capabilities uh, is there. The whole drone aspect, the whole um, maneuver warfare uh, reinforced the knowledge I was taught. I didn't make it up. It's stuff I was taught, obviously. Um, the use of armor, where people said armor is dead, or some people said it, and, and we're taught, no, you just have to use it, you know, effectively in the in the missions that they're required. That reinforced. There was a lot of reinforcing of certain things, but definitely um, the bogeyman we thought was Russia wasn't there. That's my take on it. I'm sure Thomas, if he's still, Thomas is cooking up some uh, pasta, I feel. If he still wants to answer that, if he's on, I think he's just listening. No, I'm and, on. I'm. Yeah. I will answer, but this is the last I do because then really I have yeah. to go out for four hours yeah, no and find yeah. something to drink. Um, and the cat is scratching the door because I didn't give the cat food. Um, the moment I understood that the Russians are gonna lose this war when I saw VDV columns driving down Ukrainian villages outside of Kiev with any whatsoever recon or units on foot to secure the sidelines and the Russians just got killed so quickly the bodies and the corpses were still lying on top of their vehicles. Yeah. And this is the elite of the Russian army. This is like that, the that was me too group. Thomas. That, that exact video is the one I'm talking when they had no screen, they had no recce. They just drove down the street like they're yeah. going to the store. And I wrote on 18th March an article which is still pinned to my profile that Russia has lost this war, it's over, and we're just looking at how long it takes for the Russians to realize it. Because if you go in with such incompetence in infantry tactics, tank tactics, artillery tactics, air tactics, I was I knew that the Russians' equipment is overrated. Because that was the basic what I learned in Italian military. Everything the Russians tell you is a lie in their equipment. But I assume that the tactics, at least you know the, the 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 basic things like you just don't drive into a village, you screen it, you send a reckon unit for ahead, you split your force in little groups. So if one gets attacked, there's one behind that can come to the aid of the first. Nothing, nothing. Just drive down. Maybe it's Russian racism also that the Ukrainians are not capable of defending themselves. But when you see this incompetence by the elite of the supposed second army in the world, it was clear that everything that comes behind these paratroopers is even worse. So that's it. The Russians have no chance to win this. It was over. I mean, it took a week to understand that the assumptions that I had that on the level of personnel training, the Russians were good. Even that assumption was completely mind bog mind bog completely wrong. It was blown away. <laughs>
Guys, I have to leave you. Sorry. I have Thank a really you, angry cat. Uh, the cat is destroying the door. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, well, the cat has a really angry though. <laughs> yeah. And, and, the best, and, and just to jump in, right? Thomas said you have to grab a drink. Um, I bet grab. it's a Barola, something quality in the Serbic, just like yourself. Oh, I spent too much time in England. I'm gonna go for some black tea with milk. There you go. Perfect. Thanks everyone. Good. Thomas. Thanks, Thanks. Thank Thomas. you, Thomas. Thank you, everyone. See you soon.